For many, supporting the Zionist aspiration of establishing a Jewish state prior to 1948 seems obvious, but we don't know how many players worked really hard in order to make this happen. Today, we're going to deep dive into behind the scenes of the support and opposition to the establishment of Israel. And that is why I'm happy to have Professor Jeffrey Herf of the University of Maryland and author of Israel's Moment, International Support for and the Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State between 1945 to 1949, where he examines the political realities that underpinned support for and opposition to Zionist aspirations in Palestine, in the United States, Europe, and the Soviet Union. So welcome to Balagan, Jeffrey, and uh, I'm really happy to have you here with us. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a nice question. What's the core argument of your new book? And what is new and important even for people who know a lot about Israel? Israel's moment is a study of who supported and who opposed the establishment of the Jewish state between 1949. 1945 and 1949. And it challenges a kind of conventional wisdom that of the last 50 years that suggests that Israel was the creation with enormous support from the United States, but was opposed by the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. And those are the political coordinates of recent decades, and people project them back into the past. So what's new and important is that the book recalls realities of 1945 to 49, and especially 47, 48, when liberals in the United States, socialists and communists and Gaullists in France, and the Soviet bloc all supported the establishment of the state of Israel. It was a cause celebre of anti-fascism, of the passions of the Second World War, and uh, those who opposed the establishment of the State of Israel were what people in recent decades would call the imperialists. That is, the British Foreign Office, the United States State Department, the Pentagon, and the CIA, the Anglo-American National Security Establishment. Israel's moment draws primarily on research in the archives of the United States National Archives, the State Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, United Nations documents, and the French Foreign Ministry and French Interior Ministry, and published journalism and uh, essays. And I think that what will come as a surprise to readers today, except those who are now in their 70s and 80s and perhaps remember the realities of those years, is that the British Foreign Office and the United States State Department and the United States, the Pentagon they all viewed the establishment of the State of Israel as a problem for Western national security interests because they believed that a Jewish state in Palestine would antagonize the Arab states so much that they would impose an oil boycott on Western Europe and the United States. And second, They believed, high-ranking officials in Britain and the United States believed that the new state of Israel would be an ally of the Soviet Union and communism, and that it would undermine efforts to contain communism. So 
so the arguments in favor of a new Cold War and the containment of communism, the anti-communist arguments in Washington and London in 1945 to 49 were also anti-Zionist arguments. And I think that comes as a, a surprise to many people who are accustomed to thinking of the United States as a very close ally of Israel and the Soviet Union as its clear antagonist. I think it also will come as news to see the extent of support that came from American liberals, both in politics in Washington and in journalism in New York and at the United Nations. So uh, th those are the core themes of the book. And uh, we can then go into details. Oh, and I would love to go into details. I think that today we're going to focus on what happened in the U.S. I mean, because the book is really broad and it's giving the different, I would say, what happened in different countries. It's, it's talking about the U.S. in Europe and including the Soviet Union. But I think that for our audience, we're going to focus on the United States. So let's start with, of course, the obvious uh, supporters of Israel. Who was leading the efforts and how did they do it? Well, it's a New York and it's a Washington, D.C. story. So let, let's begin with New York, in the, which was the city with the largest Jewish population in the world uh, at the time. Until today, by the way. Until today, really. Okay. Yeah. The uh, largest Jewish city in the world. <laughs> okay. Let's, let, okay. So, so let, let's talk about New York. In 1945, in April, the French army arrested Hajim al husseini the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, and they collaborated with the Nazi regime. In New York, the American Zionist Emergency Council, Stephen Wise and Abba Silver and others, along with liberal and left liberal journalists, such as the editor of The Nation, Frida Kirchway, uh, the journalist I.F. Stone, people that today's audience may not be familiar with, all urged the United States government to indict Husseini for war crimes and put him on trial in Nuremberg. And there were rallies in New York City in Madison Square Garden calling for the indictment of Husseini, urging France to expatriate him to Nuremberg. Plus, there was support among American Jews and others, uh, liberals, for Jewish emigration from Europe to Palestine. And it's very important to, keep, to remember that for journalists such as Stone or Kirchway or politicians such as Senator Robert Wagner or Emmanuel, Congressman Emanuel Seller, Hajimin al-Husseini and the leadership of the Arab Higher Committee were tainted as a result of their collaboration with the Nazi regime. So when people spoke about racism and anti-racism in 1945 and 46 and 47, they had in mind the Mufti. They had in mind Hajimin al-Husseini. Zionism was seen as a reaction against racism and also against imperialism. So that um, a momentum in favor of establishing the Jewish state emerged in New York and in Paris and, and, at, and at the United Nations. And it came to a, a head in the spring of 47 when Andrei Gromyko, the Soviet ambassador to the UN, gave a speech in favor of a two state, of an Arab state and a Jewish state. So from 45 through the spring and summer of 47, this momentum is growing in American popular opinion and American liberal opinion in favor of the Zionist project. This momentum is seen very much as a continuation of the anti-Nazi and anti-fascist passions of the Second World War. 
So those are the supporters. And they were unsuccessful in bringing about an indictment of Husseini, who the French held under house arrest for a year near Paris. And then he was able to, quote, escape and go back to the Middle East. Um, the, <laughs> Unsurprisingly uh, for the French, by the way. Well, yes. And so you asked, you know, we were going to focus on the United States, but one of the aspects of the book that I found most interesting to work on, and I hope readers agree, is the stunning details about the conversations between Husseini and French diplomats in 1945-46, in which it became clear that France saw it to its advantage to be on the right side of Hajimin al-Husseini in hopes of sustaining French influence in North Africa and the Middle East. But the support also included the president of the United States, Harry Truman. And President Truman was very unusual because he was both an anti-communist, the president who launched the Cold War, but he also was very sympathetic to the Zionist project. The book tells a story that has been told by other historians to some extent about a president who is facing the almost unanimous opposition of his secretary of state, secretary of defense, director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the new director of the policy planning staff. So the first part of the book is about momentum, momentum, liberal momentum in favor of the Zionist project. Then you want me to talk about the opposition yes, in the United States? Of okay. So the, one of the things that is sometimes lost from memory is that the Jewish state was established in the same months and year that the United States and Britain and Western Europe began the Cold War. One could say Stalin began the Cold War, whatever. The Cold War began. And the simultaneity of the beginning of the Cold War and the establishment of the Jewish state must be kept in mind because in Washington, New York, the major strategic issue was containing Soviet influence in Western Europe. Israel and Jewish state was an emotional headline, but it was a strategic sideshow. And uh, priority for Secretary of State George Marshall, the Director of the Policy and Planning Staff George Kennan, Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, British Foreign Minister Ernst Bevan, their priority was to contain the Soviet Union in Western Europe. So faced with this momentum in the summer and fall of 1947, George Kennan, uh, who by then was very famous for having written memos in the State Department about the need to contain the Soviet Union, Kennan and others began to apply, or rather expand on the meaning of containment of communism in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And they examined this issue in something called the Pentagon Talks in September and October of 1947. And the book goes into quite considerable detail about the Pentagon Talks. And that brought together military and diplomatic leaders from Britain and the United States. And the conclusion of the Pentagon talks, again, was that the cornerstone of American policy in the Middle East should be support for Britain's strategic position. Because Britain was crucial for containing or opposing Soviet expansion. So whatever was good for Britain would be good for the American national security interest. Well, the Zionists wanted to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And that is to eliminate British control in Palestine. And uh, they were willing to live with an Arab state in Palestine, but not with British bases 
and not with British control and not with British control of the coast, etc. So the conclusion of the Pentagon talks was that the United States should not support the establishment of two states in Palestine. President Truman insisted on supporting the partition resolution in November of 47. But behind the scenes, and you asked about what was going on behind the scenes. Exactly. Behind the scenes, George Kennan, Loy Henderson, other high-ranking officials in the State Department began to oppose support for the partition resolution. And the book goes into memos that George Kennan, as director of the policy planning staff, wrote in January and February of 1948. And uh, in those memos, Kennan made the argument that the establishment of a Jewish state would undermine American national security interests. The January 19th, 1948 report by the policy planning staff on the position of the United States with respect to Palestine focused on access to oil and the danger of Soviet pressure. Many people listening to this podcast will be familiar with the coupling of Jews and communism, Judeo-communism, Judeo-Bolshevism. These were made famous by the Nazis during World War II. And of course, the British foreign, the, the officials of the British Foreign Office and the State Department would not use that language and they wouldn't speak in that way. Um, but they, in their minds, they also did think that the Jews coming from Europe were more modern than the Arabs, modern in the sense of in tune with modern socialist and Marxist traditions, and that this new state of Israel would be more inclined to be sympathetic to the Soviet Union. And Kennan made those arguments as well in these memos. And in the book, I go into the Kennan memos in some detail. And the listeners to this podcast may or may not know who George Kennan was. So just a brief comment. George Kennan is probably the most famous American diplomat since World War II. Henry Kissinger is a close second. It is within the foreign policy establishment. Henry Kissinger is very famous around the world. Within the foreign policy establishment, Kennan Uh, stands head and shoulders above others for his eloquence, his keenness of mind. And he was famous for writing a memo in 1946 about the nature of Soviet conduct and of being the intellectual author of what became the containment of communism. So he was not a fringe figure. And he was appointed as the first director by Secretary of State Marshall, former five-star general George Marshall, the chief of the army during World War II, He was appointed as the first director of something called the policy planning staff. And so what Kennan said reflected closely what George Marshall thought. This was not an example of an American ambassador to Saudi Arabia or Cairo, Egypt, who just had gone native and was an Arabist. There were a number of those people, of course, who were sympathetic to the Arab monarchies or at least sympathetic to the Arab point of view, Arab states. Kennan brought these views into the center of the foreign policy establishment. And he was very emphatic about it and persistent. And the State Department, one practical result was that one of his associates, Lloyd Henderson, suggested an embargo on arms to the Middle East. In, he suggested this in November of 1947. And that American proposal then became a United Nations proposal. The arms embargo was imposed at a time when there were existing Arab states who had borders, airports, navies, what have you, access, 
their own already established armed forces, and the state of Israel had not yet been created. So the impact of the embargo was to disadvantage the Jews uh, in the Jewish agency before May of 48. And then it continued after the Arab state invasion of May 48. The Israeli political scientist Shlomo Slonim wrote a very fine article about the embargo about 25, 30 years ago that I read about the embargo. Uh, and uh, Slonim, who's now emeritus at Hebrew University, did very fine work. And I expanded on that. So the book goes into the extent to which the United States and Britain, of course, attempted to enforce the embargo. Again, one of the themes of the book is the very limited political influence of Jews in the United States. They were unable to bring about an indictment of Husseini, and they were unable to get the United States government to lift the arms embargo. That was indicative of the limits of their political power and influence. This is important because people often talk about the Zionist lobby or the power of the Jews. No, what Truman did was the most that they could get out of the government. Legally, because unlegally, I mean, uh, we had people who actually helped to buy surplus, army surplus, and move it through Panama to the Czech Republic and to the state of Israel. There's uh, a lot of romance about that. Yeah. And there was some of that. And there were Jewish American Air Force veterans who flew yeah. planes in 1948. And uh, the book examines the suspicions of the United States government toward those people who were accused of violating the Neutrality Act. And, and certainly that was a factor. But when the issue was up in the air, the weapons that the first the Jewish agency and then the Haganah and then the state of Israel needed came from communist Czechoslovakia. Right. And... Uh, one of the most telling anecdotes of the book is toward the very end, in May of 1949, when the first American ambassador to Israel, James McDonald, meets or the Prime Minister uh, David Ben-Gurion and Foreign Minister Moshe Sheret, I believe in Tel Aviv. And uh, the State Department at that point was expressing irritation with Ben-Gurion because he was refusing to agree that Palestinian refugees could return. And he said, well, if they will sign a peace agreement, then we can talk about return. But if they're at war with us, why would we want them to return? Right? You're making a ridiculous demand of us. And then the Americans said, well, think about all that we've done for you. And Ben-Gurion said, well, actually, you didn't support the partition resolution. Then you supported an arms embargo. You supported the Bernadotte plan in the summer of 1948, which would have meant we would have lost the Negev desert. Right. And then Count, Count Bernadotte who was a UN yes. representative. He was assassinated. Uh, yes, yes. It was yeah, very tragically. Yeah. Ben-Gurion, who liked James McDonald very much, James McDonald was very sympathetic and, and was a lone voice. He was appointed by Truman, who supported the new state. Ben-Gurion then said to him, if we had had to depend upon you, meaning the United States, we would have been exterminated. So I think uh, Israel's moment recalls the vulnerability of the Jews in Palestine in 1946, 7, 8, and the limits of support that came from the United States, uh, both diplomatically, militarily, the support from the Soviet bloc was more 
consequential, more persistent. Uh, of course, the Soviet Union became very embarrassed about this fact. And after the fall of 1949, it, it turned against Israel and then did its best to repress the memory of the era of Soviet Zionism. So the realities of those years are quite different. And I, I think readers today who are really seriously interested in history will learn new things. Even people in Israel, I think, will learn some new things, especially about, especially about the United States. I definitely agree with you. I think that it's, you know, we tend to forget history. And, you know, states are always playing with where they stand in the terms of policies. The Soviet Union was, for many years, was against the Zionists also. And then they were the first one who supported us. And actually, Ben-Gurion, I can't say that he was close with uh, Stalin, but we had better relationship with the Soviet Union than the United States. But eventually, Soviet Union has turned against us in a really early stage. Uh, it, it wasn't so eventually. It was, it was pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, in the, in the first Israeli elections, and here I'm, I'm telling you things that you know better than me, in the first Israeli elections, the Israeli Communist Party got about 3.5% of the vote. And the Mapam Party, which was not communist, but was sort of sympathetic, more sympathetic to the Soviet Union, got 14% of the vote. Yeah. And Ben-Gurion was able to form a coalition government without either of them. Right. And when Stalin saw that, that Ben-Gurion had kept out the pro-Soviet elements of Israeli politics, I think that was one reason he realized that their hopes that Israel would be a pro-Soviet bastion in the Middle East were wrong. So, so part of the book, I didn't, I didn't really drive this point home in the book, but talking with you, I think it's fair to, to express it. There was a massive intelligence failure in Moscow and London and in Washington. They all thought that this new state of Israel was going to be pro-Soviet <laughs> uh, uh, for different reasons, right? And it turned they were all wrong, right? Truman was right. And he was convinced, and one of his aides, Clark Clifford, convinced him that this new state, in fact, would be a democracy and it would be sympathetic to the democracies and all that. But the ideas that I examine in Israel's moment persisted in the United States State Department and Pentagon for the next 20 or 25 years. That's what I wanted to say, that it took yeah. the State Department a long time to become friends with, with the state of Israel. Yes. Yes. And here, I, the, the real American alliance with Israel, a consequential alliance, emerged only after the Six-Day War. Yes, 68. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, the first uh, visit of uh, an Israeli prime minister was Levi Eshkol, who was uh, the third prime minister of Israel, the first visit to the U.S. of an Israeli prime minister. When was that? In 1966, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. Under Lyndon Johnson. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, yes. wasn't, it wasn't well, Ben-Gurion, and it wasn't, by the way, uh, Moshe Sharet, who served as a prime minister for a really short period of time. One of the things that, you know, perhaps this is, perhaps your listeners and you uh, take this for granted, but maybe not. In writing the book, I came to appreciate David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Sharet. I think that in the context of 20th century political figures, they are among the significant ones, both of them. They're very different, and their skills are different, and but uh, Shared at the UN and and, uh, and in Washington was mo was most impressive and uh, uh, and when and Ben Gor what Ben Gorian understood perhaps biographers of Ben Gorian have made this point often is that 
Israel's moment was brief yes. and that he understood that the Soviet Union was adopting a favorable policy, but there was no way of knowing how long that was going to last. And if the Zionists had waited and postponed and the Soviet Union had changed its policy, it would have been much more difficult to establish the Jewish state, much more difficult. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, Ben-Gurion was one of a kind. And I would actually love if you can elaborate a little bit about Moshe Sharet and his work, because he was always in a Ben-Gurion's shadow. Yeah. And there is not much that is known about his work, you know, behind the scenes. And if you can give us, uh, you know, some more details about that, that will be great. Well, Moshe Sharet was working as the, uh, the de facto foreign minister of the Jewish agency and was in Washington and in New York a lot. And the State Department files that I drew on reveal his conversations with Secretary of State George Marshall and Deputy Secretary of State Robert Lovett. And uh, he did his best to convince them that the policy the United States was adopting was encouraging the Arabs in their aggression. And a very different policy was necessary in order to prevent the war. And he was not successful. The United Nations files are fascinating. And these are public files of the General Assembly and, and of the Security Council, especially the Security Council. Because there you can see Moshe Sharet with Abe Iban challenging the United States and Britain and the various truce resolutions that they put forward. Because they make arguments, very good arguments, that the truce resolutions that the Americans and the British were proposing were favoring the Arab states. So it's very striking to see the United Nations debates. You have, you have Sherrod and Iban on the one hand making common arguments with Andrei Gromyko and um, Vasil Tarasenko, the representative of the Ukrainian SSR on the Security Council. So there's that. And then there's a very important document, which is Moshe Sheret's first speech at the United Nations as foreign minister of Israel. And that is in May of 1949, on the day that Israel was admitted as a member of the United Nations. And Sheret's speech is, is one that I, that I cite, document, and, and it's a brilliant speech. You can see that he has the diplomat's ability to be very firm and clear, but ambiguous at the same time. By that I mean he refers to, obliquely to efforts to reject the partition plan or to diminish Israel's advances on the battlefield. And he's speaking to an audience of diplomats who know exactly what he's referring to. So he doesn't explicitly criticize Britain and the United States, but it's obvious to the audience there what he means. And, uh, and then he, uh, he says the, the foreign policy of the state of Israel is to have good relations with both the United States and the Soviet Union. And the speech is, a, is a, a summary of the past two years at the UN. And in a way, Israel's moment is a 463-page elaboration <laughs> on what Moshe Sherrod said in, in May of 1949. So he understood the limits of diplomacy, but uh, he was very skillful in building coalitions and alliances at the, at the United Nations. So it, uh, perhaps he doesn't get enough credit 
in historical in his- accounts of his accomplishment. Because if the United Nations had turned against Israel, then it would have been uh, uh, very difficult. And, and uh, so he and Avon, uh, Avon, of course, is more flashy and more flamboyant and more famous. And well, but 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 Sherat was. You can see in the memos, and you can you can see in in his speeches that he was he was the driving force of Israeli diplomacy, and it's very impressive. I thought, I think. Yeah, and thank you for shedding light on that thing because. Uh, Not much is known about uh, Moshe Sharet's work, you know, even in Israel, by the way. Uh-huh. Maybe there will be some scholars and students and others who are listening to this podcast. The United Nations documents, the General Assembly and some of the security documents are available online at the official document system of the United Nations. And if you read the United Nations yearbook, which is also online, In this podcast, I'm not going to give a mini lesson about how to use the United Nations document. Yeah. <laughs> Suffice it to say that it's possible to use the online resources of the United Nations with a bit of practice and homework to learn the details, to gain access for research, for our students, to a speech by Moshe Sharon or Gromyko or, you know, there's an enormous amount of stuff that's available online. That is free, no at no cost. I found work in those UN files quite interesting. You definitely encouraged me to go and look for a Moshe Sharet speech, for the full speech. If you look in the footnotes of the book, you'll see yeah. the particular citation that has the internet address. And as I say, when reading the UN yearbooks and combining that with the official document system, with some practice, You can find many, many interesting and important documents up to the present day, of course, as well. Yeah. Let me well, say a word about racism and anti-racism. Yes. We, haven't, we haven't discussed that issue. Um, no, we haven't. And uh, I would love to have it as a closing uh, thing because I tend to agree with you that it needs to be brought up. Yeah. So on campuses, uh, as we both know, it's common among those who are antagonistic to Israel To describe it as Zionism is a form of racism and Israel is an apartheid state. And a colonial uh, state. And, now, and a colonial state. And a new way. Uh, right. A colonial state. And so, uh, well, Israel's moment demonstrates that the, quote, colonialists and imperialists of 1947-48 were all opposed to the establishment of the Jewish state. So, you know, I think if Edward Said were alive, I would be delighted to debate with him about who was an Orientalist and who was not an Orientalist. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, Because the, uh, the, quote, Orientalists were very much in favor of the Arabs. But one of the very serious problems regarding the establishment of the State of Israel and its history is the neglect of the racism of the leadership of the Palestine Arabs in the Arab Higher Committee. One of the documents that you can find using the United Nations yearbook and the official document system is a speech given first in September of 1947 at the United Nations and uh, on September 29th, 1947, to be specific. Uh, this is the second time he gave a version of this speech. He gave it in January of 1947. And Jamal Husseini was a cousin of Hajamin, and he was a member of the Arab Higher Committee. And Jamal Husseini was the counterpart to Moshe Sherat. Moshe Sherat, was the UN representative of the Jewish Agency, and Jamal Husseini was the UN representative of the Arab Higher Committee. 
And they both had equal rights at the United Nations, observer status as non-governmental organization. So some people say the Palestinians didn't have representation in the United Nations. That's ridiculous. They had equal representation to the Jews at the United Nations. And so Husseini gave a speech, which is a long speech, 25, 30 pages, about why he opposed the Zionist invasion. And he said his opposition had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. And Zionists were exploiting the issue of anti-Semitism. And then he, he added another reason as to why he opposed the establishment of a Jewish state. And he said the Arab world is a racial homogeneity that extends over the southern and parts of the eastern board seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea, from the north of Africa throughout Egypt to the Persian Gulf and the Turkish borders of the Indian Ocean. The people of that vast territory, he said, speak one language and have the same history, traditions, and aspirations. Their unity in all these matters is a basis for mutual understanding and a solid foundation for peace in one of the most central and sensitive areas of the world. It's a conspicuous contrast to the nations of the northern seaboard of the Mediterranean, where there are different nationalities and non-homogeneous communities and diversity of interests and mentalities. And this has always created an atmosphere of antagonism that culminated in a calamitous war. So what Jamal Husseini was saying, first in London and then in New York, was that the diversity of Europe, the multiplicity of cultures, was a formula for war, and racial homogeneity was a formula for peace. And the Zionist project, the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine, was one that he opposed because it would upset or shatter the racial homogeneity of the Arab world. In other words, however politely you want to express it, he was making an argument in favor of racism. Yeah. That and eventually and, the Arab states did not accept the partition plan. And, and they didn't accept the partition area. plan, not because there was a product of Western <laughs> imperialism. They didn't accept the partition plan, and I'm now just citing Husseini, because the entry of the Jews, as if the Jews had not been there before, which was ridiculous, but let's just for the moment put that aside. Yeah. The establishment of a Jewish state would interrupt or undermine a racial homogeneity. So this argument that racial homogeneity produces peace, but diversity produces war, that's the argument that he made. And today in our campuses, those who argue in favor of diversity and multiculturalism and should recall Jamal Husseini's arguments. And when people accuse Israel of being racism, racist or apartheid, they should remember who in 1947-48 was making racist arguments. So the book will be disconcerting to many people, perhaps. One other point about Jamal Husseini and the Arab Higher Committee that is too often understood, but perhaps a bit glossed over. They not only opposed the establishment of the Jewish state, they opposed the establishment of an Arab state on part of British Mandate Palestine. So if they had taken a different position in 1947-48, there would have been an Arab state existing alongside a Jewish state for the last 70 years. Historians have an expression called, and the past is a foreign country. And Israel's moment recaptures some of that foreign country. And I hope it will be read widely, obviously, not only among scholars, but a general public and in Israel and around the world. 
And for everybody who wants to be educated about uh, the state of Israel and the Israeli-Arab conflict, I think it sheds a lot of light on what happened behind the scenes and what were the interests. I'm glad you think so. I have the advantage of teaching at the University of Maryland, and my office, our history department, is one mile from the National Archives of the United States. So I don't have to get on a plane or pay for a hotel. You know, I live here <laughs> and the archives are here. And so I was able to spend considerable time working in these very complex archives and revealing the inner workings of American military and diplomatic strategy in the beginning of the Cold War and during the establishment of the Jewish state. And that will come as a bit of a, a revelation to many people, I hope. Professor Jeffrey Herf, I really want to thank you for your time and for your book. I highly recommend people to read it, and I will definitely put the link to where people can purchase the book in uh, the episode description. Mm. And I'm looking forward, actually, to speak to you again and uh, to have you on Balagan Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Same here. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.